Galatians chapter 2. Now, if any of you have had as hectic a week as I have, I just want to tell you congratulations. You made it to church today. That is an accomplishment, and I can identify and relate with you on that level. Um, I want to acknowledge just the gratitude that I've had, uh, will have had, for the guys from Redeemer coming to preach the past few weeks. Not 100% sure what your opinion or impression of them has been, but it has been a blessing uh, to us. Uh, and we, in the past couple weeks, if you haven't noticed, we've talked about the gospel a whole lot. And today, in Galatians chapter 2, we're going to talk about the gospel some more. I've been told that the gospel is not just the diving board for your faith, right? That's how you spring into faith. It's actually also the pool in which you swim. So in light of our nice, sunny, summerish weather we've had the past couple days, we're going to swim around into Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21 is where we're going to be. Uh, and uh, this, this passage is just basically the book of Romans condensed. So if you want to understand this more, go read the whole book of Romans and you'll, you'll get it. But we're, we're going to take some time to, to dive in here to swim in this. So hopefully by now you're there. You've got your swimming trunks on. Let's put the floaties on, air them up, get a pool noodle to beat the guy next to you in case he falls asleep and uh, some sunscreen. And then we'll, we'll, we'll jump in. So Galatians chapter two, 11 through 21. I'm going to read this. We'll pray and then, and then we'll unpack it. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Father, this morning as we unpack these verses, I pray that you would grant us understanding. God, I pray that we would see the beauty of the gospel and we would understand what it means to be justified by faith in Christ, by the work of Christ and what that means for us. God, I pray that you, by your spirit, would do the thing that only you can do. Transform our hearts and our minds to be more like you. Complete the work that you began. We ask this, God, for your glory and our good. Amen. Okay, main point for this morning is this. Main point is the doctrine of justification by faith frees us to live in faith. Seems repetitive. The doctrine of justification by faith frees us to live in faith. Now, we're going to talk about doctrine for a little bit this morning, a lot of bit. And doctrine can seem to be sometimes a scary word 
or a boring word, depending on how you look at it. So I want to encourage you and challenge you uh, to hang tight, because I think as we just swim in the shallow end of the doctrine of justification, I, I hope that you see the beauty of what God has done for you and what he's doing in you. Okay, so that's our main point. Let's jump into it. In order to understand what's going on here in Galatians 2, 11 through 21, we have to have a little bit of background information. And we're not going to talk about the church at Galatia. We're going to talk about the first character. But when Cephas, who's Cephas? He's Peter. What do we remember about Peter? Well, Peter was one of the disciples of Jesus, right? One of the early apostles. Peter was kind of a, a ready, shoot, aim kind of guy. You know, like when you're pheasant hunting and a pheasant flies out from underneath your feet, you just like pull the gun up and shoot and then you aim. That's kind of who Peter was. He, he was a little bit of, of fire first, aim second. But despite Peter's uh, personality, God still chooses to use him. So, so remember, Peter's in a boat, and it's stormy, and here comes Jesus walking on water, and what's Peter's inclination? Well, step out of the boat and walk to Jesus. Makes total sense, right? Just get out and walk to him. So Peter steps out of the boat, and he's looking at Jesus going, man, I'm doing this. And as soon as he starts thinking, man, I'm doing this, what happens? starts to sink, right? There's our, our ready, aim, shoot, okay? So a ready, ready, shoot, aim. So, so Peter does that. A little bit later on, what do we know about Peter? Jesus comes to him and says, Peter, you're gonna deny me three times. Jesus, no way, no how. I would never do such a thing. I, I love you, I would die for you. Yet, before the rooster crows the next morning, what does Peter do? Denies Jesus three times. Despite that, Jesus comes to Peter after his resurrection, and he gives Peter a personal mission to be a witness for him. Peter is to be the rock of the church. He's one of the main pillars. And so then in Acts, we see Peter preach, and he must preach some awesome sermons because thousands of people get saved. Spirit of God does these miraculous things. But Peter's primary mission at the beginning of his ministry is to the Jews. It's where he's focusing his efforts and his energy is to the Jews. Then we get to Acts chapter 9. And in Acts chapter 9, Peter has a vision. This sheet descends from the clouds. And on the sheet are all these animals. There's pigs, crows, and all sorts of unclean things. And you know what God says to Peter? Hey, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And you know what Peter says? No way. I'm clean, God. I keep the law. I don't, I don't do that kind of stuff. And God looks back at Peter and he says, Peter, do not call common what I have called clean. So Peter, the vision ends. And immediately after it ends, these guys walk up and they say, hey, there's this Roman centurion named Cornelius and he needs you to come explain the gospel to him. And all of a sudden it clicks in Peter's mind. I get it. At the foot of the cross, the ground is level. There's no difference between being Jewish or Gentile or Greek or Roman or slave or free. We're all one and the same. We're just fallen people in need of a savior. So, so Peter understands that, right? He, he gets that. That's Peter, all right? So we know for sure Acts 9 and 10 has happened. And then we get to Galatians 2, 11. Peter decides, you know what? I have now, now I know that pork is clean and I've had a bacon cheeseburger and I want another one. So he knows he's not getting one in Jerusalem. He hikes up to, to Antioch, up north of town. He finds the Gentile church. He finds his buddy, Paul. Paul, how's it going? Man, it's good to see all my brothers in Antioch. And he sits down to have a meal with them. One bacon, green chili cheeseburger coming right up. Once you've had bacon, you can't go back, right? Peter is excited. He's happy to be there. All's going well. Then verse 12. For before certain men came from James. Now, who's James? 
Let's understand who James is again. Remember, James is the half-brother of Jesus. He's a disciple. He is one of the pillars of the church in Jerusalem along with Peter. And he's discipled this group of guys, teaching them what it means to walk in faith. And he sends them up to go check on Peter. And they go walk in, and Peter's sitting there, and he's two bites into his green chili bacon cheeseburger with curly fries. And all of a sudden, he sees those guys walk in the back of the room, and you know what Peter starts to do? He sets his hamburger down. He keeps talking, all's well. And we don't see it here in, in the English, but he drew back from them. It doesn't mean like he immediately just like set it down and walked out, but just kind of over time, he begins to distance himself from these Gentile sinners because, man, what happens if they eat some of that pork and their filthiness gets on me? So, so Peter starts to withdraw himself from table fellowship with these guys. Now, here's the thing. In Judaism, table fellowship means fellowship before God. For eating a piece of broken bread by everyone who shares in the meal brings out the fact that they all have a share in the blessing which the master of the house has spoken over the unbroken bread. What's that mean? In other words, if I sit down and have a meal with you, I'm identifying myself as having a personal relationship with you, saying we are equal. So, so Peter, eating with these guys, is declaring that just by sitting at the table with them. Yet, in walk the disciples from James, and he begins to withdraw and to back up and go, I can't be seen with you. What's the word that's used there? It's they were, he was acting like a hypocrite. Literally, he had a mask on his face, play acting is what that means. And not only did Peter back up, but who else backs up with him? Well, the rest of the Jewish Christians and even Barnabas. Now, do you remember who Barnabas is? He's the friendliest guy in the world. Everybody loves Barnabas, and Barnabas loves everybody, yet Barnabas is starting to back away from people. Now, let me illustrate what this might look like in our day, okay? You walk into a restaurant, it's clearly not here in Dalhart, and you see me sitting there, and I'm eating dinner with a guy. This guy has a nose ring, and he's got gauges in his ears, and he's got his hair in a man bun, and it's dyed blue. And he's drinking a craft beer, while eating a grilled chicken salad. Clearly not Dalhart. Now this picture of this guy that I just painted in your head, you think something about him right away, right? I do. I, I have a preconceived notion of this person. This guy to me is probably most likely, he's probably a tree-hugging Democrat that lives off of welfare and supports a nationalized health system. He is not the kind of people that we live with, right? And you see me sitting with that guy, or I see you sitting with that guy, and what's your assumption of what I'm doing? You're hoping that I'm witnessing, right? Man, it's one of two things. Either that's Matt's crazy cousin, or two, Matt's sharing the gospel with him. It's one of those two things. But really, what you're hoping that I save him out of is, is not out of his sin, but out of his blue hair, craft IPA beer, and grilled chicken salad. Get the guy a steak, Right? That, that's what our, we tend to lean towards. But don't you see, that's exactly what Peter was doing. P Peter, was, Peter was wanting those guys to conform, or that's what the disciples of James were wanting. They were wanting those guys to conform to their way. When, when that happens, what's going on there is Peter's withdrawal here of these people, or me, having this conversation, seeing you walk in and starting to back away from this person, my problem is not my action. 
What Peter's problem and what my problem is in this moment is, is I don't understand the gospel. I'm not living out the gospel. Peter was not walking in step with the gospel. That's verse 14. What that phrase means is it means he literally has crooked feet. He's not walking right anymore. So how does Paul respond? How does Paul respond when he sees this problem? Well, he confronts him. He calls him out in front of everybody. Can can you imagine us having a church potluck dinner and all of a sudden you stand up and you look across the room and you see me doing something that's anti-gospel and going, Matt, cut it out. Can, Can you imagine the drama of this moment? That's exactly what Paul does. He sees that Peter and the rest of the Jewish Christians, even Barnabas, are not walking in the truth of the gospel and he calls them out. Peter's external problem of backing away from the Gentiles reflected an internal problem of not comprehending the depth or the breadth of the gospel. By his actions, what Peter was declaring was that in order for you to be accepted by me, you're going to have to conform to my cultural and social norms. You're going to have to become like me. What Peter was doing was he was just reverting back to his Jewish heritage, his Jewish background, right? The Jews had all of these laws that God had given them. And in order for them to obtain righteousness, they had to keep those laws. But they were so afraid of breaking a law, they built a hedge around it, which meant that, for example, don't eat kosher, don't eat unkosher things. You can't have bacon. Well, the Pharisees took that a step farther and said, well, don't eat with the Gentiles lest you be tempted to eat bacon because who's not tempted to eat bacon, right? So so the Pharisees had taken it a step further, but we do the same thing. Charles Spurgeon identified three things in his culture a couple hundred years ago that I think are applicable to us today to be aware of that picture this. There's pride of race, pride of face, and pride of grace. I'm going to unpack this for a minute. Pride of race is when we find our identity and our worth and our value in our Americanness. I'm better than you, Russian, because I'm an American. I'm better than you, Mexican, because I'm an American. Or you find it in the fact that I'm white. Or in the fact that I'm black. Or the fact that I'm Asian. Or maybe it's culture-based. I grew up in the Texas panhandle. I grew up in a good family. I grew up going to church. I grew up as a farmer, a rancher. And because of that, I'm better than you. That is pride of race. And when we find our identity and our pride of race, we're fueling division, not unity. If you're finding your identity in your race or your culture, you don't understand the gospel. That's pride of race. Pride of face has to do with being proud of what your accomplishments are. One pastor said, we tend to see people in categories, right? So I'm rich, he's poor. I'm better than you because I'm rich. But I might not be as rich as that guy, so I'm not quite as good as him. Or I'm skinny and you're fat. Or I'm good looking and you're not good looking. We tend to categorize people. We tend to base our value off of what we can or can't do or who we are. If that's where you're finding your identity is in your pride of face, you don't understand the gospel has to do with your talents and your abilities, what I can do or what I can't do. But here's the thing, who gave you your talents and abilities? 
They came from God. So if you are trying to earn approval from God, if you're trying to earn righteousness from God by what you can do, you're going to fall way short. In, in one sense, your talents and abilities have no value. They don't gain you anything in standing before God. It's only by the grace of God that you get that. So that's, righteous, that's pride of race, pride of face, talents and abilities. And the last one, which is probably the most dangerous for us, that's pride of grace. What's pride of grace? Well, it's the belief that because I've never committed a certain sin or I've always acted a certain way or I come from a Christian family or a Christian community or a Christian country that God is okay with me. Is God okay with you because of your background? Because you were baptized? Because you did the right thing? No. J.D. Greer says, in Christ there are no good people or bad people, winners or losers, People who have it together are dysfunctional people. There are only bad, dead, sin-sick rebels without God and without hope in this world. That's how God, that's how the word of God describes you and me. Bad, dead, sin-sick rebels without God and without hope. Yet God saves them by a sheer act of grace. So, no merit of yours brings you closer to God. It is all the gift of righteousness that Christ imputed to you. So, question for you. Where are you finding your righteousness? Is it your pride of race, your pride of face, your talents, abilities, or your pride of grace, your, your background, your upbringing? Peter was guilty of at least two of those in that moment, right? He thought he was better than the, the Gentiles because he was a Jew, he thought he was better than the Gentiles because he had been raised as a Jew. But that's why Paul runs at him in verse 14 and says, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Dude, Peter, you've been living just like they are and now all of a sudden you're wanting to change face? How, what? That doesn't work. Peter's withdrawal is not just a pride problem. It's a gospel problem, which is why the solution for Peter what Paul runs at him with is what? It's the gospel. The solution for us is the gospel. So pick up with me in verse 15. We ourselves were Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. What's the solution to Paul's problem? Short answer is justification. That word is used four times in this passage, once more in, in verse 17. But what does it mean to be justified? How are we justified? Well, that's what I want to spend the next few minutes defining, unpacking, looking at. John Calvin said, justification by faith is the hinge on which all true religion turns. Martin Luther said, and this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consisteth. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, that we should teach it unto others, and we should beat it into our heads continually. So what we're going to do for the next few minutes is we're going to beat the doctrine of justification into our heads so that we understand it. Now, again, 
We're swimming in the shallow end of the pool here. We're not diving into the deep part of it. If you want to understand justification more, well, you'll have to come back for the rest of Galatians and spend some time in the book of Romans. But what does the Bible mean when it says you can only be justified by faith in Jesus? I want to give a definition. This definition is, I took a bunch of other definitions and combined them. So it's kind of, if you read the definition of justification, this is kind of it combined with several others. Justification is the gracious legal act of God by which he declares our sins as forgiven and credits us with Christ's righteousness solely through faith in Jesus. I'll run it by again. Justification is the gracious legal act of God by which he declares our sins forgiven and credits us with Christ's righteousness solely through faith in Jesus. All right. We're going to break this down. We're going to understand it in parts. Justification is the gracious legal act of God. Part one. Who does the work? God does. God alone does the work. It's not us participating in something. And since it's God who's doing the work and not us, then our faith itself is his grace towards us. So justification at its core is all about grace. One of the pastors that I read this week on this, he, he warned of part of the challenge, or one of the things that we have to be careful of, especially in our context and culture is, is we tend to make people, we tend to think if you will pray this prayer, then you will be saved. That, that's how we tend to do it. But, but what you're doing is you're making praying a prayer a work of salvation. It's not actually your faith saving you, it's you saying certain words that save you. We have to be careful of this. Because faith is not something that we muster up. Faith is evidence of grace. It is something that God gives us. So this is a work of God that's done by God for us. It's a gracious act, and it's also a legal act. It's one in which he declares something. Now, there's a story of a judge in a small claims court. And this, uh, this judge had a lady come before him. And she had violated some law. She was a homeless lady, violated some law. And he said, ma'am, did you do this thing? And she said, yes, I did. I did violate the law. He said, well, the penalty for violating the law is a $500 fine. And as soon as he said that, the woman just began to crumble. She didn't have a penny to her name. She was brokenhearted. There was no way she could pay it. She began to cry. And, and the judge, all of a sudden, he set his gavel down. And he stood up. And he took his robe off. And he laid it on his chair. And he walked down the stairs he pulled out his wallet and he gave the lady five $100 bills. And they turned around and he walked back up there. He put his robe on and he sat back down and he said, ma'am, is there any way in which you can pay the fine? And now those tears of fear, because knowing that she couldn't pay the fine, her next step was jail, were tears of joy and tears of gratitude, knowing that her, her crime could be paid for. Now, this illustration breaks down on a multitude of levels, and we'll see that here in a second. But once she paid her fine, you know what the judge did? He declared the penalty to be paid and her free to go. It couldn't be held against her anymore. It was done. The, the penalty had been paid. The judgment had been rendered. This is exactly what justification is. It's a legal act of God by which he declares our sins as forgiven. This declaration is against us in the work that we did. Now, here's the thing. This is really important for Paul. Who was Paul? What did he do? Philippians 3. 
Paul was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of, of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, he was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor for the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul was the kind of guy that had Genesis through Deuteronomy memorized. He knew that. He knew the Torah. He could quote it to you from start to finish. He kept the law. He did exactly what he was supposed to do. And he loved the law so much that when this group of people rose up and said, hey, the law's not necessary anymore, do you know what he did to those guys? He threw them in jail. But two verses later, do you know how Paul describes his good works in keeping the law? For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. When Paul first encountered Christ, he realized that God's judgment that was due him was not due just for his unrighteousness. The judgment that Paul deserved and that was coming at him was for his good works. Because his good works did not gain him righteousness. If anything, they showed him how, fall, how short he had fallen of a savior. This is what the law shows us. It shows us that our best efforts are not anywhere close to good enough. But that's what makes justification so wonderful. When God justifies you, you're justified forever. He's declared your sin as forgiven. It cannot be and will not be held against you again. Not only is your sin eternally forgiven in the eyes of God, God does something, he declares something, but he also credits us with Christ's righteousness. Right, so this is where that illustration breaks down. The judge goes and gives the lady 500 bucks, but in justification, not only do you get the payment for your penalty, you also get access to the bank account. That's what's beautiful about justification. You now have the righteousness of Christ. When God looks at you, what does he see? And he sees Jesus, fully righteous and fully perfect. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin. Why? so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In justification, we gain all of Christ's righteousness. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. So now, in justification, what do you get? You get innocence. You get righteousness. You get peace. You get freedom. That's what happens in justification. So here's the question for you. How are you gaining your righteousness? How are you justified? Is it by your works? Is it by your background? Is it by your talents and abilities? Or is it by faith in Christ? Is it by the work of the blood of the lamb, the one who died on the cross, the one who loved you and gave himself for you? When you place your faith your trust in Jesus, you're justified. So there's two groups of people in the room. There's those who are not justified, and then there's those who are justified, right? Well, what about those who are justified? If you are in Christ, my faith is in Jesus, and I do believe he has saved me, and I, I believe that only his payment is the one that will satisfy the wrath and judgment of God. If that's you, what about you? Are you then just free to do whatever you want to do? I'm, I'm free. The penalty's been paid. I can go on. Well, Paul anticipates that. Verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? 
Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. One commentary said, Paul had no room for a salvation that consists of praying a prayer, supposedly trusting in Jesus and then living your life the same after that. That's not a saving faith. Faith isn't just for receiving salvation. It's also for enabling us to live out salvation. But that's not what Peter had just done. Peter had gone back to rebuilding what had been torn down. He was now adding a law, you must become like me, for people to keep in order for, him, for them to be accepted by him. And Peter displaying that was displaying, if, I, if I'm going to accept you, you have to do this. If God's going to accept you, you have to do this. Peter was betraying the gospel and Paul wouldn't have anything to do with it. So he confronted him and he showed him a better way. The law that Peter, and even Paul for that matter, that they had been trying to keep their whole lives, what did that law show them? It showed them that they had to die. But how was he to do that? How was he to die so that he could live? Well, what's the most famous verse in all of Galatians? Galatians 2.20, right? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What Paul was telling the church at Galatia and what he was reminding Peter that by placing your faith in Christ, you are crucifying yourself with him. You're saying, I no longer live. This guy, this old man who seeks to find the approval of God through my race or my face or my uh, grace He's dead. George Mueller, who was a church pastor a couple hundred years ago, uh, I thought his explanation of this was helpful. He said, there was a day when I died. I utterly died. I died to George Mueller. I died to his opinions, his preferences, his taste, and his will. I died to the world, its approval or censor. I died to the approval or blame even of my brethren and friends. And since then, I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. Have you died? Have you died to your wants, to your opinions, to your preferences, to your taste, and to your will, or are you living for the glory of you, to satisfy your wants and your needs and your desires? If you're in Christ, your identity is found in the man who walked out of the grave. It's no longer in your self-esteem, your self-confidence, your self-direction, or your self-exaltation. If you have been justified, then the focus of your life, the power of your life, flows from the one who loved you and gave himself for you. Your identity is found in the gospel, and the power to live your life comes from the gospel, which is why the gospel isn't just the diving board, it's the pool. To grow in faith is to begin again. It's to know the gospel. This list I found this week that I thought was helpful is by another pastor. He said, if the gospel drives your identity then, you may feel abandoned, but in Christ you're loved by God. You may feel condemned, but in Christ you are spotless and above reproach. 
You may feel down on your luck, but in Christ you were blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus, and all things work together for good. You may feel neglected by others, but in Christ you've been chosen by God. You may feel defeated by temptation, but in Christ you have died to sin's power, and Christ now lives through you. You may feel dead and lifeless, but in Christ you have resurrection life coursing through your veins. You may feel like you aren't making any difference in life, but in Christ, you are raised with Jesus and seated in the heavenly places, and he has blessed you to be a blessing. You may feel broken, but in Christ, you've been made complete. In Christ, you are a new creation. In Christ, you are adopted into his family. In Christ, you are a partaker of the divine nature. In Christ, you are a beloved child of God. That's who you are. Where are you finding your identity? Quit acting like someone else. Quit acting like Peter and making a law that you should keep to earn the approval of God because the only way God approves of you is through the blood of the lamb. Now, we have to be careful here to avoid the pride of grace because we tend to think he saved me. I have to do something for him, but that's not the gospel. We typically reflect on what Jesus did in the past on the cross, and that's a good thing to do. But we tend to leave it there and start to think, what can I do for him? Here's the thing. He's not done. The work that God began in you, he's continuing to do through you now. He's doing it for you, through you, and in you. That is how we live by faith, by trusting for God through the spirit, because of the blood of the lamb, to complete the work that he began. The life that we live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The son of God is the one who justified us, and the spirit of God is the one that sustains us and carries on the work until it is completed. Church, who does the work? It's Christ. Who started it? Who carries it on? Who completes it? Your best efforts are just you creating another law by which we try to earn favor. And when you lean on those efforts, you fall short. Your efforts will never satisfy God. That's what Jesus is for. But because of Jesus, God looks at you and says, I am satisfied. And you can trust in that and you can walk in that. Even the good things we do prove our need for a savior. The Christian life is one that is begun by faith in the gospel, that Jesus loved you and he gave himself for you. And the Christian life is one lived by growing in our understanding of the breadth and depth of the gospel. Peter didn't do that. Peter backed away. He trusted in works. Where are you trusting in your works? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said, are you walking in the grace of God or are you living according to some law? That's not the quote. It's not in there. There it is. He said, it is the grace at the beginning and grace at the end. So that when you and I come to lie upon our deathbeds, the one thing that should comfort and help and strengthen us is the one thing that helped strengthen us in the beginning. Not what we have been, not what we have done, but the grace of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The Christian life starts with grace. It must continue with grace and it ends with grace. Grace, grace, wondrous grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. 
How are you walking? Are you walking with crooked feet? Are you walking in step with the gospel? Are you walking in the grace of God or are you living according to some law? Are you living in the freedom that the gospel, that the doctrine of justification gives you? Or are you walking in bondage? Peter's external problem of not eating with the Gentiles reflected an internal problem of not comprehending the depth or breadth of the gospel. What are your external problems and what do they reveal? Do you have that gospel prayer? We'll go ahead and post that. This was written by a friend of mine. This is something he wrote for himself to quote to himself every day to remember the gospel. Uh, So I want to just read through this real quickly. I think this is a good thing for you to do. You can write it down, take it home. I can send it to you later. But it says, point number one, in Christ, there is nothing I could do to make you love me more. Nothing I have done that makes you love me less. Why? Because of the gospel. Number two, you are all I need today for everlasting joy. Where are you finding your joy? Number three, as you have been to me, so I will be to others. You see, that's, that's what Peter didn't do. Peter wasn't being like Jesus to others. What would it look like for you to be like Jesus to others because of the gospel? Number four, as I pray, I'll measure your compassion by the cross and your power by the resurrection. Church, where are you finding your righteousness? Is it in what you do? Is it in your background? Is it in your abilities? They all fall short. But thanks be to God for the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Father, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for living the life that we should have lived and dying the death that we should have died so that now you see us as children. You see us as spotless. God, forgive us where we walk in bondage of the law and not in freedom of the gospel. Lord, I ask that you would help us. Spirit, do what only you can do. Help us, help shine a spotlight in those areas where we are clinging to our works or our heritage or even our abilities. God, and I pray that you would set us free from that and that we would walk in the freedom and in faith that the doctrine of justification brings. May we see the gospel as beautiful and good. May we see you as beautiful and good. Father, we love you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Church, we're going to transition into a time of observing the Lord's